Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 892 with Kevin O'Donnell. Nine times out of ten when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I thrive. That's when like all of my senses are just on high alert. I'm focused. I'm like hyper all over everything. And I can I'm, I'm actually usually much more clear-minded when I have a lot going on. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. And who likes data entry? No one. So you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with Margin Edge. They will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail. Don't worry about tech integration either because Margin Edge allows you to seamlessly connect your POS and accounting systems and get a daily P&L. And on top of all of this, Margin Edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes. Plus, you can compare actual costs versus theoretical costs. Head to marginedge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for 30 days. No contract, no setup fee. Plus, you'll get free unlimited training and support. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable. Now, I know you know about Plate IQ, but do you know about Plate IQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. Plate IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Plate IQ card. With Plate IQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued easily. And I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and custom approval workflows. To learn more, head to plateiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save 25% off implementation. Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering, and this is because Chow Now helps their restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. With Chow Now, take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site, and there are no setup fees or monthly payments. And what I really love about Chow Now is that you get to own your customer data. This is something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And when you schedule a demo, don't forget to ask about leveling up with Chow Now Direct, Chow Now's comprehensive online ordering and marketing package. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up today at chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. 
With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, chef owner of Justo, Chef Kevin O'Donnell. My man, Kevin, are you feeling unstoppable I'm today? I'm feeling it, man. I'm feeling Dude, good. I'm psyched to be here. Your episode originally 269. We recorded way back in 2016. Uh, a lot has happened in your life since then, so I cannot wait to pick up where we left off. The last time we talked to you were at SRV in Boston. Uh, that was, again, in 2016. You are now in Newport, Rhode Island with Justo, your first solo project where you're the, the sole proprietor, correct? Correct yes, me if I'm wrong. Correct, yeah. So we're going to dive into the details, but let's, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? I think it's so important to keep moving. You just got to keep going, keep moving, looking ahead and not stop. Uh, don't be afraid to evolve. Mm, I love it, man. Um, so how has that kind of rang true in your life recently? Uh, I mean, recently, since day one, I've always loved like <laughs> new challenges and new things and, you know, being just thrown stuff to feel almost overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's since Justo's opened, it's been just nonstop challenge, nonstop curveballs, nonstop need to evolve and think, you know, five steps ahead. Yeah. Um, when you're feeling overwhelmed, how do you handle that? And this is this actually came up in our, our first interview. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so nine times out of ten when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I thrive. That's when like all of my senses are just on high alert. I'm focused. I'm like hyper, you know, all over everything. And I can I'm I'm actually usually much more clear minded when I have a lot going on. There's science to support that. Uh, I remember back from my uh, when I was studying to become a commercial pilot, we had to do a humans factors course and there's a bell curve that is associated with stress and performance. And there's a peak of like when you're slightly stressed out, it's when you optimize when your performance is optimal. And once you hit like a, a threshold, it like plummets, it goes straight <laughs> down. But on the backside, if you're like fat, dumb and happy and you're not stressed out, then the same thing starts to happen. You start to drop the ball on things. So it's, it's a really pretty bell curve that they've been able to, distinguishly map out so you're right on man yeah, like, and it's like you, to feel stagnant and to not you know not be constantly doing something that's productive and i'm learning and i'm feeling engaged then that's when i feel stagnant and that's when i kind of i let my guard down i get lazy or i you know i go for i when i'm on i'm on and when i'm relaxed my brain is shut off and that's it you know i'm which is good it's like work hard play hard yep and i chill hard too so i love it man so Kind of paint the picture for us. Last time we spoke, uh, and again, if you're just listening to this episode and you're, or maybe you just started listening to Restaurant Unstoppable, you weren't listening back in episodes, the, the 200s, uh, hit pause, go back to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 269, and we will have the first interview right there waiting for you if you want to kind of listen to Chef Kevin's early uh, career. Today, we're picking up where we left off. So that was 2016. Paint that picture. Where were you in 2016? What was going on? So 2016, uh, that was our second year of SRV in Boston. What's it's SRV stand for? The Serene Republic of Venice. Is it like, do you guys just like that? That also like phonetically spells out serve? Yeah. yeah. Was that, oh, we call, was that, that was purpose? like our joke. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, the general manager at the time, Ted Hawkins, who's yeah. now um, the director of operations for that restaurant group and a partner at SRV. Past guest on so the show. Cool. So amazing to we see. We also had Ted on the show. You should listen to that yeah, one too. Yeah, great guy. Uh, so he used to call it Serve, Serve Bar and Grill, just like as a joke, you know, Serve Bar and Grill. Um, but yeah, SRV was, was uh, in its second year. 
We had just been nominated for James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant in the Country. Um, we just got nominated, or we were just um, awarded with Best Italian, uh, Best New Restaurant in Boston. Wow. They were like, it was just kept coming. It was an amazing time. SRV was and still is such a such a special place. What made it special? The passion, the the dedication from the team. Um, you know, the the fact that it was a it was a really unique restaurant. I think from concept to design to execution what made it unique uh well first of all i mean srv the serene republic of venice you know is we've stayed fairly true and they they do to this day obviously i always i now i talk about it in past tense i'm not i'm not a part of it anymore but you know it's still it's, a still, part, one of it's your still a part of me it's still one of your babies you, know? you help create it um Cicchetti, the the venetian snacks the bar snacks that is a such a fun kind of wine bar snack bar scene in venice and we tried to recreate that and i think we did a really great job of that it's so much fun you stand you bounce around to all these different wine bars in venice snacking drinking little half glasses of wine and just having fun so we created this little chiquetti bar area in the restaurant um which was a ton of fun standing room only snacks you know it was like it was legit. That's you know? a great way to bump up against people too. I feel like when you're at a bar and you're sitting in a seat, your job. But when that, we recently had um, somebody on the show to talk about the history of bars and just restaurants in general, and how back in like the you know more so in like the 18th century and the 19th century, they really helped form societies and they played a huge role in in towns. Like you went to the the restaurant, the bar, the public house for more than just drinks. You went for your news. You went for politics. You went for meetings. It was where people got together and were community. And we've gotten away from that. But I like this idea of having standing room only. Like what? Like paint the the the, di- the dynamic of that and how that was that is different than maybe being forced to sit in one spot. I mean, it, you're absolutely. You just nailed it. You, in Venice, it's. It's all the farmers markets. It's the fishermen. It's yeah. the farmers going in there at eight o'clock in the morning to these bars and having a half a glass of wine for breakfast with some snacks. And that's when they're sharing their news. And it, it, you nailed it. Um, so we wanted to recreate that. And yeah. it's like fun, vibrant, low key, just like stand around, meet people, talk to people, communal area. Um, you know, it's just it's great energy. It's yeah. good fun, and every night, so I feel, like in my mind, I'm seeing a party. And it, and I don't like know about you guys, but when I go to a party, I'm typically not a wallflower. I float, and I feel like what's what's cool about taking the chairs away is you you let people float, and you bump up against people, and you meet people, and that's why we go to bars now, like to meet people, to bump up, and to socialize. I think it's it's a something you don't see very often, but I think it's super powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So yeah, that was the second year in SRV. Um, I was having a blast. You know, I was learning. I was I was cooking new food. I was challenged, and my partner, one of my partners, Michael Lombardi, and I. He and I are both chefs, and you know, we were we were cooking some great food, and they, you know, they still are, and um, it was a ton of fun. So that was 2016. I, I do remember one of the things that stood out to me, and I thought was really impressive, and you didn't see it a lot in 2016, but you're seeing it more of it now. Is this idea of bringing the mill into the restaurant? Uh, who else was doing that back then? I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, nobody was. And that's, yeah. you know, again, that's at least not in Boston. We were inspired by, you know, Mark Vetri in Philly, who was milling in a smaller capacity. Um, you know, we we had visited Four Star Farms in, in Massachusetts. And, you know, when we first opened the restaurant or before we were when we were conceptualizing the restaurant, you know, freshness, quality ingredients, cooking great food, delicious 
and unique. Those are the things that were coming to our mind. And how do we do that? So, you know, Michael and I love making pasta. We actually met working in Italy together. Um, and we bonded over making pasta. You know, everybody would go off and I think we talked about this in, in our first episode was that, you know, working in the restaurant together, there was, we were closed in between lunch and dinner in Italy and all the other cooks and everybody else in the restaurant would go take a, you know, a siesta or go out and go back home, chill out or whatever. And Michael and I would stay back in the restaurant yeah. and we'd just make pasta and we'd mm-hmm. bond and we'd cook. And, you know, it's like we're, we're in Italy to learn. We're not going to like take a siesta. We don't care about that. We can yeah. rest when we come home, but this is our time. This is know, our time. We're trying we're, to learn. Exactly. We're, when you're there on their time, you're there, you're learning. But when you get that free time, like that's where you really get to push the envelope and try new things. Exactly. I love that. Um, and I, one other thing I love about the mill is that I think that it also helps. I mean, and you can speak much better to this, but what type of flexibility does that give you in the kitchen as far as being able to try different things? I mean, it opens up the flexibility is endless, you know? So coming up with this idea of, okay, we love making pasta. How can we be different? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a ton of great Italian restaurants in Boston great chefs making great pasta. How can we differentiate ourselves aside from just technique? Yeah. It's the ingredients. So if we can source heirloom grains from different farms, starting with Massachusetts where we were, um, using locally, locally grown, you know, sustainably sourced and delicious, fresh grains that we mill in the restaurant Mm -hmm. that, that would set us apart. So, you know, we were able to find, um, specific grains and you know it took a lot of trial and error to create a pasta flour blend that we were really happy with and that kept evolving and we would try new grains and you know different varieties of of ancient wheats and it was it's was a ton of fun but that's all story that you can bring to the consumer and create that experience of like this isn't just handmade pasta this is handmade pasta from heirloom grains that came from this farm and like people love that and not to mention it it's better for your community. You it's know? better for you. It's better it, for your body. Too. Yeah, like, yeah. And this is where I think the food system is going is 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 just really trying to like, especially we're talking with the NFTs coming up and people being able to, to tie the tr- the transparency that, that 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 allows. You know, it if if your fish that you're eating, which hook it came off of, down to like the the, the, the fisherman's name who caught the fish, you can trace things with that type of like preciseness now. So when you ha- when you're doing all this work. To, to 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 make the best food possible and you can tell a story behind that like that all has to show up right absolutely i mean people people love the story people want to know where their food's coming from and you know it gives it it gave and still gives you know i say gave again but it gives <laughs> this the service team at the restaurant something to be proud about and talk about at the table with the guests and educate everybody and everybody's learning and trying something new and that's that's exciting you know yeah. and that's there's another side of this story, right? That that's the, the, the obstacle is the way approach, right? Doing it the hard thing because it's the best thing. But what does that, how does that cause trouble for business sometimes? Um, I think, yeah, that's a good question. It it causes a lot of trouble, but it causes more, uh, a decision like that caused more good than it did trouble. You know, the, the trouble, the things that we found were, okay, we're milling this flour in house. You have to sift out, you know, use a sieve to sift out the bran. You can use some bran, but if you're trying to use whole wheat flour, it can't be the whole wheat and that's it because the the pasta needs gluten and there's no gluten in the 
bran. So the pasta just fall apart. It wouldn't have the same chew and structure to it. So, you know, having a byproduct of bran, you know, in a pasta restaurant where we're milling a ton of pasta flour and bread flour too, all the bread, all the breads were made with, um, you know, freshly stone ground flour as well. Um, so we were left with a decision. Okay. What do we do with this brand? Like is, it was an ungodly amount of brand. We we're asking pig farmers and our chicken farmer and, you know, just asking everybody, what can you do with this brand? We had a, uh, the bakery down the street, Ma- uh, Madeline cafe, Madeline. Uh, you know, we, we were friendly with the chef there. We were just like giving brand away. Like what make some fun brand muffins or do something <laughs> with it. It's like, you can only do so much with cream of wheat. Basically. Could you start a brand concept where you just sell brand from one from your powder mill restaurant to <laughs> we tried man oh my god we could at, at a certain point we couldn't even give it away so the um you know the, there's a there's like an internal challenge that we had or internal struggle that we had it's like we're making this beautiful product but while making this beautiful product we're also unfortunately being somewhat wasteful yeah and that's that's unfortunate um but it, it at the same time it like when you create waste in a restaurant, if you're a smart enough restaurateur, you can look at that waste and see opportunity. You see this with like in the kitchen when we're like, don't throw the, the, the byproduct away, make a stock out of it. Right. And then make a soup. Right. And make that into money. Um, I can see that being difficult with brand though. <laughs> it was tough because it's so, it's so much. We had so yeah. much. So, you know, we, you're absolutely right. It, it forced creativity and, mm-hmm. you know, making, making brand stock for the pastas to instead of using water, use brand stock or making, mm-hmm. you know, different porridges or, you know, coating the bread in it or using it. Yeah. A million different, there's a million things you can yeah. do with it, but at a certain point there's so much of it that it's tough to use up. What about a uh, operational standpoint where now, I mean, how hard is it to make flour that you can use to make pasta? Yeah, there's a. I mean, there's a lot of kind of logistical challenges with milling the flour. Um, first of all, it's not a shelf stable product, so that in and of itself is is a challenge, right? Now, something that before you go and buy a bag of flour off the store at the store off the shelf, or you you at a restaurant, you receive a 50 pound bag of flour. It can sit in your dry storage room for six months without yeah. any problems. Um, as soon as that that those grains come in. You can store them at room temperature, but when you mill it, it has to be refrigerated. So now you have to think about more refrigeration space. You mm-hmm. have to think about, you know, rotating the product to make sure that the first, you know, you use the first, use first, right? Um, but then it's also because it's not shelf stable, you have to worry about how much you're milling at a time. You definitely don't want it to go bad or rancid. Uh, when you make the dough, it reacts differently. So, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve there. And because it's, we were using single varietal heirloom grains. It wasn't like going to buy a bag of King Arthur bread flour or, you know, Caputo zero zero pasta flour where it's, that's not just one grain. They're taking in a lab samples of 10 different grains from that season or that year and blending them together to make the perfect protein structure and, and have a consistent product that's the same year over year. See, that's the part in my mind where like you need somebody. This is a skilled position. You're not hiring somebody off the street and say we're going to start you off at the in the mill. Like you, you got to teach that person how right. to do this. Is it just like any other recipe where you're like there's like measurements and you're like you get you, you know you you mill this much wheat and then that gives you this much and when you get to this amount of grams then that goes into 
you know, is, it, is it that simple or is there more to it? There's more to it for sure. I mean, yeah. it's basically like that, but you know, a lot of the recipe development was done by the chef team, the great, great chef team there with, um, you know, when I was there it was, you know, Michael and I, obviously we had a chef de cuisine, Tyler Chase, who was amazing. Uh, Meg Thompson was the pastry chef at the time. She's brilliant. Great sous chef team. Um, just we had a lot of brains involved in the development of the recipes and we had a couple throughout the you know four and a half or so years that i was there we had a couple really amazing pasta makers there as well and some of them were able to get involved with that with that you know development of the recipes and some some others were able to execute the recipes really well but maybe weren't part of the development of it so more of taking a recipe and executing it rather than like helping us develop the hydration ratio, how much egg to how much egg yolk, or maybe it's a water, which might change based on how much, you know, how coarsely ground it is or how much bran is in the the flour or, you know, what variety of wheat it is might take a different hydration ratio. What's the shape of the pasta would take a different, there's a million different variables yeah. that come into play there. But the benefit of it is while, while it's a huge challenge to deal with this fresh milled flour, you know, something else that's important, especially in a restaurant is like, you have to not only be unique and stand out to your guests, but you have to be unique and stand out to people that want a job. Mm. So if you're not thinking about that as you are creating your concept or as you are coming up with your menus, then you're not going to attract talent. You're not going to retain talent. You're not going to stand out in the, in the talent pool where there's, there's a million jobs out there. So you know, there's some jobs that are going to pay a line cook 25 bucks an hour, 30 bucks an hour. Uh, those jobs aren't more, you know, most likely are not going to be the ones that are going to be able to offer education and making food from scratch yeah. and all these other things. You know, choosing to mill your own flour is a financial investment as well. It's not, it's not paying 80 cents. You're not saving money, flour. I'm guessing. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, normally you look at a, a a restaurant that does pasta, homemade breads, and pizza, for example. We didn't do pizza at SRV, but those are just like predominantly flour-based foods. Flour is commercially or, or like industrial is a, is a fairly cheap commodity item. Right? Yeah, it's units of work. You know, when you're when you're, I don't know how many thousands of pounds of flour get milled a day but like you can that's how you keep the cost low is because it's units of work but when you choose to, to take that in house like by cutting out the middleman there you're not doing yourself really any favors as far as saving money you're creating a lot of work for yourself right and it's not just hiring somebody off the streets it's somebody that you need to train it's a special it's a skill it's a skill so i guess the whole reason why i want to bring this in is because there's things like it takes a lot of it, it's expensive to do food right and to, to give to, to give yourself these types of creative freedoms. And I think it's important to that. Like if we want food done right, that's the best version that you can put in your body. We need to communicate this to the consumer and say, listen, like this is going to be ex- expensive and you need to know down to like the penny, what it's going to cost you to, to execute this because it's really going to affect your bottom line. So what, was this a challenge or is this a challenge? Uh, <clears throat> I think for some people, but what, you know, we're still talking about SRV. So what SRV does really well is education yeah. and not only to the kitchen team, but for the, the service team, you know, and if, if a server, a bartender, a manager, a food runner, anybody is comfortable enough to explain the process and to help answer questions to the guests sitting at the table, why is this bowl of pasta this much money or why, 
you know, why are the prices like this or what is icorn weed or, you know, bluebeard Durham wheat? What, what is that? If that food runner, server, bartender, whoever can answer that question and educate the guests and get them excited about it and tell that story, the history, then, you know, I think if people know what they're putting in their body and they understand how much effort and thought and, you know, good went from getting to that point, yeah. then, you know, things that you put in your body are almost, I mean, for me personally, it's invaluable. Mm-hmm. I, I'm willing to spend almost anything on something that's good for my body. Um, and, and, and I, I have think a feeling that's the direction people, consumerism is going because we're yeah. starting to realize if you follow the money, like over the past 10, 15 years, there's been like this, this huge movement towards people being like getting stupid geeked out over how can I get the best thing? And the best thing we're starting to realize now, this gets into biodiversity and regenerative farming. And we're realizing that if the ecosystem of the earth is healthy, then that produces the best tasting, most healthy food. And we're all, we're tracing it back. So I, I do believe that consumerism is going to transform the industry. And I think the restaurant industry is the hinge between the consumer because we, we, they come and they sit at your table and you do everything you just said. They educate the guests on why this is the best thing for you. And that's why I do believe the restaurant industry is going to transform the world. Yep. I agree. It's powerful stuff, but from an operational standpoint, like what for people listening to this and they're like, I want to do that. What do you need to know? What did you learn the hard way? Like what were you excited about when you first got started? And what did you realize after I think you were there for four years, right? Yeah. Yeah. So with the flour milling specifically, I think um, when we first opened, we thought we could sift it by hand and boy, were we wrong. (laughs) You know, we tried to make all these, uh, you know, homemade kind of contraptions to help us sift them. Pretty clever ideas. But when we went to, when Michael and I visited Four Star Farms in Massachusetts, who, who has a industrial grain mill, they're growing the wheat. They're milling the wheat. They, I think they they focus mostly on corn or mm-hmm. pollen, you know, like cornmeal right now. Um, we saw the mill. We bought the same mill, a smaller version of it, but the same industrial mill from North Carolina, Stone Burr Mill. So I think, you know, that was a great move. We saw their their sifter to remove the bran and and get fine flour from it. Um, it was huge and an, an enormous. It almost doubled the price of the mill. It it would double the space that we needed to do it. And we had to make that decision. Okay, well, it's a restaurant. You got to pay X amount per square foot. You only, you know, every restaurant, almost every restaurant in the world always needs more space. So space is so valuable in a restaurant. We're like, you know what? We can hand sift it. We'll try to hand sift it. And but we, how much is labor? Oh my God. Yeah. Was, and these, this is how you, this is thinking like a restaurant tour. This is thinking, okay, I spend 10,000 today and I save how much over the next five years right? by like, what's it going to cost me to pay five people? I don't know how many people would it take this. Like, what's that process look like? Uh, so we had, we had uh, one full-time person making pasta and then a couple people kind of assisting throughout the course of the week. And then our pastry chef, Megan, um, you know, she was also assisting with the milling process, making all the breads with the flour. So yeah, there was, there was a f- definitely a few people involved in that. What would your labor expense be to shift flour? If you had a guess I'll to w- sift it. Yeah. Um, well when we were doing it by hand, you know, doing it by hand is almost like anybody could do it. So it, it's not, it didn't have to be, you know, the most expensive hourly person or salary position well, minimum wage 15 bucks an hour yeah at know? least at least 15 bucks an hour <laughs> yeah. you know um and then after probably about six months or a few months we um 
we were able to come up with a solution that uh, we found a company that that developed sieves for I think it was in like sifting flour. Uh, sorry, sifting dirt for metal, like precious metals, and it was basically a vibrating sieve that worked, but it was on like eight hours a day. So who knows what that electric bill yep. was? Um, you know, in hindsight, if we had just had a little bit more space and built that that automatic sifter that forced our farms had that we saw when we, when we were conceptualizing it, you know, our, it would have been much easier. Yeah. But this, this type of information right here is gold for somebody who is listening to this and is inspired by this, maybe wants to recreate it someplace else. Like these are the things you just don't know until you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, so any other things worth bringing to this, this, the conversation uh, during the, the four years that you were with, SRV before leaving. So I'm trying to pick up where we left off and I want to make sure we get any evolutionary points for you as a, as a restaurateur during this time. Yeah. I mean this, this was my first SRV was my first, um, venture as a, as a partner, uh, as a co-owner of a, of a business, yeah. and let alone a restaurant. And, you know, I had worked, f- I was fortunate enough to work at some really great restaurants that not only were great chefs, but I also worked for a couple really great chef owners. Yeah. So I, the, I got to see, and I think that's so yeah. important that if you are a chef specifically and you want to open your own restaurant, you need to work with somebody that's a chef owner so that you can learn from a somebody that you are going to be in that position one day. Um, and then you should also work at a restaurant where it, there's not a chef owner. So you can see the other side that's maybe there's work at a restaurant that the owners don't even operate the restaurant because you need to see there's value in each of those businesses. You know, the value that you might see in a working in a restaurant that the owners do not operate it and they're an investment firm or it's just a, a hobby or a passion project or whatever it is, they're looking at it most likely from the financial side. And mm-hmm. that's that's their number one it's kind of driving decision making yeah. Process. And it's like, this kind of stuff that made me want to start this podcast because I had parents that opened a restaurant when I was three and they were that first version where they're in it every day, right? It lines out the door every weekend and we struggled to pay the mortgage. And I remember looking at other restaurants where the, the owners were never there and they're on vacation. I'm like, what's the going on here? Like, what's, mm-hmm. what are we missing? And like, that's what was really, you know, driving me to start this podcast is to learn about the, these things that you're talking about, the systems and processes and all those things that play into it. Uh, but for the listeners who chose not to take my advice and go back to episode 269, why don't you just real quick, like rifle off, like without getting into detail, just like the path you took where you, the stops you sure. made along the way. Uh, so grew up in Rhode Island. Um, always worked in restaurants since very young age, dishwasher, bus boy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was a server at a time. I was prep cook, line cook. You know, I did everything in the restaurants yeah. and I, I predominantly worked when I was younger in my in my late teens in like mom and pop pizza places yep. um, in my hometown and then found this restaurant uh, right after graduating from high school. I was kind of a lost kid, you know, didn't want to go to college, made that decision in high school. I didn't take any college prep courses, didn't even take the SATs. I, you know, I was a junior in high school and college in, in high school and I was like, I'm not going to college. That was, yeah. I made that decision. A lot of it was because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to have debt, but I also kind of hated school when I was that age. So <laughs> we get into this, the first episode. You, you give us great detail. Just, just tell us the stops you made. Literally right, the names, so, the, the mentors and the names of the restaurants. That's all I want to so hear. So high school was the first, the first great restaurant that I had the mentor that inspired me to go to college um, to Johnson Wales, Walter Slater. Well, okay. And he, you know, inspired me 
that was that was my foot into college, which led me to do an internship at Italy. So if yep. I didn't work for Walter, I wouldn't have gone to Johnson and Wales. If I didn't go to Johnson Wales, I wouldn't have internshiped in Italy. Came back to the States. Where I met my next mentor, Lorenzo Pellegri okay. in Umbria. Okay. That's where I fell in love with Italian food, had an amazing time, came back to the United States after, and I met my next mentor, Aaron Edwards, who actually works with me now here. So we'll he and I talking about him are later, back together. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, he had an Italian restaurant in Rhode Island that was great. And I just like my passion for Italian food kept growing. I was with him for a year. And then Lorenzo back in Italy called me to move back out, went back out there for two and a half years. That's when I, I lived there in Italy, countryside, had a car. You know, I felt like part of that culture and yeah. I traveled the whole country, learned everything about Italian food and culture and wine, had an amazing time, had to come back home. Event, you know, I can't live in yeah. Italy my whole life. It just wasn't realistic. Um, and I met, that's where I met Michael, my, my partner from SRV, where we opened up together. He and I became great friends. He ended up moving to New York, uh, to work at Del Posto, which has since closed. Um, but what an amazing restaurant. Mark Ladner was the chef there. Uh, when I'd started, they, they had two Michelin stars. They had just gotten their fourth. They'd just gotten four, uh, New York times stars, which was like unheard of for an Italian restaurant. Uh, what a, what a cool like special time to to be in New York at, and working at Del Posto. Had an amazing time there. I was like climbing the ladder, just got promoted, loving New York, having fun. Um, you know, Phone and, rings. And an opportunity <laughs> came up. And, you know, this is, this is like another really thing, like real thing that I believe in is like not passing up and just follow, you know, if something feels right, it felt right to do this. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to Paris and open a restaurant. And I never in my career had ever said like, Oh, one day I dreamed to go work in Paris. That wasn't like, that wasn't my drive. It wasn't a dream of mine. And you know, I was so focused on Italian food. All I cared about was Italian restaurants and learning about regional Italian cooking. Um, but why the hell would you turn down this opportunity to go to Paris and open up a restaurant as the chef? So, well, a little, I got to jump in here. Sometimes you got to take a step back or a sidestep to go forward, right? Yeah. If you're someplace, and the canopy's only so high in at Del 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 Posto Del, Del Posto Del, Del Posto. Yep. I mean, you can. There's tons of opportunity that's going to create for you, but you have people ahead of you, you know. So sometimes you got to take a step aside to have a higher ceiling or whatever. And I don't know if that's what this was for you. And I'm and reels are trying to go through this quickly, so I don't want to slow you down. But yeah. keep, keep going, keep going. Yeah, well, that's that's right. You know, it's like there's always going to be another amazing Italian restaurant in the United States that I could work at. Yeah. When am I ever going to have an opportunity to open up a restaurant as the executive chef of a restaurant in Paris, France? Exactly. Like that's yeah. that opportunity doesn't just get like thrown at you all great the time. Great resume builder too. And it is a great resume builder. And it just opened my eyes to a whole nother culture, a whole nother style of cooking and yep. people. I, I absolutely fell in love with Paris and the people and you know, all the restaurant tours and chefs that I met there were so open and you know, helping and it, it was an amazing experience. So you're there for a year. I was there for a year and, you know, at a certain point, I, I didn't plan to go to France. So I was like, I, you know, I got to go home again. I, yeah. I can't live in France the rest of my, my life as much as this is an amazing experience. So I, I decided to move back home. Um, and now my, I'm, I'm married now. My wife and I, uh, we were dating at the time. We moved up to Boston together. So I moved back from Paris. Her and I moved up to Boston. That's where I met um, Jim Koshner and Mike Moxley, who used to own the salty pig together. Now it's just Jim Koshner. Um, and I worked there for a few years and had a great time, you know, working with Jim and Michael ended up coming up and working at salty pig. 
So we had a great time at Salty Pig, and that's where uh, we all came together to come up with a concept of SRV. And then, so Michael and I left and uh, Salty Pig and opened up SRV with Jim Koshner and Mike Moxley. Got it. Um, okay, thank you for going through so that. That's to SRV. So, yeah. So that was the fast forward version of episode two hundred and sixty nine. If you want the details, go back and listen to that episode. Um, so you're you're at SRV. Um, any other? I think where we left off. Any other key lessons you learned uh, about business? This is your first partnership. Uh, we we talked about a little bit in the first episode about the dynamics of partnership. Uh, I, like it's you know you can go faster alone, but you can go much further together is a, a saying I like after now six years of working in a partnership or is it five years, five years of working in a partnership, any lessons about partnerships that you learned um, that have ser- that are serving you today at Justo? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, you learn a lot from failures and you learn a lot from making mistakes. And I think one thing that we all kind of, we didn't iron out, as best as we could have at the beginning was creating not only kind of expectations for each other, Mm -hmm. but also, um, you know, clear roles and dividing those roles up. Did you listen to our interview before our first interview? No, we talk about this and I, I was asking you questions about this ironically. Um, and you're like, we all kind of just, you know, pick up where the other one left off. Yeah. I was like, interesting. And it worked for, it worked for a while, but then at a certain point, you know, if, if two people's dreams and aspirations are the exact same thing in some ways that helps, but in other ways, you know, if, if, you know, Eric, you and I are doing this podcast together, we start this podcast company, you know, restaurant unstoppable. We both have the same goal and dream, you know, there's at a certain point, like one of us has to take the lead, Yeah, you know? And, um, you know, there can't be two voices interviewing and having these conversations with different restaurateurs and chefs. So for us, it was hard because in a lot of ways, you know, Michael and I wanted a lot of the same thing and maybe we wanted to do certain things that Jim was doing or maybe Jim, you know, vice versa. So, you know, because we, I think we didn't have the clearest set of expectations for each other and who is exactly doing what. And, uh, you know, also what you, what you want to do evolves too. And like, you know, I, I love being a chef. I'm passionate. I love cooking. Um, but I don't, you know, I I don't want to be in the kitchen the rest of my life. That's not, that's not my goal. I want to learn. And of course I could be learning in the kitchen nonstop from other cooks and other chefs. That's, that's great. But for me personally, I needed and wanted, um, a, a little bit more. And so I think it's really important that if, you know, going into, into partnerships with people like we, there were so many pros. I learned so much from Michael and Jim and, and so there's uh, two Mike Mox. Moxley. So Michael is Michael Lombard, Lombardi, Lombardi, yes. yep. um, your chef friend that you went, you, you grew with. And there's another Mike. Yeah. Just to, it gets a little confusing. He was one of the partners of Coda Correct. group um, who brought you guys on as partners for SRV. Correct. Got it. Yep. So in case I got confusing for the listeners. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's the, there's so many benefits to having partners First of all, and this is kind of the obvious one, it's like there's th- we had there were four of us. There was three other people aside from me that were as emotionally invested in the business as financially invested in the business and would do anything to make that business succeed. Yeah. So, 
you know, you can trust and we could trust each other, to, and, and, yeah. which was amazing. And those are know? the benefits of a partnership is exactly you, like there's a reason why one of our core values at Restaurant Unstoppable is collaboration because you cannot do it alone. Right. You literally cannot do it alone. You can't be expected to be good at everything and be the best in the industry today because you will burn out. It's impossible. There's freaks out there. Some of I unless you're a freak, you know, I don't recommend doing it, you know, and those freaks, they burn out. You know, like the you, you pointed out, like Marco Pierre White and some of these people that were your 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 uh, aspirations when you were young. But then you were also quick to say they burnt out. They we we these people might be rock stars, but at the same time, do we really want to recreate that life for ourselves of not really having a life but the restaurant? Is that reasonable? Yeah, yeah, that's it's I not think so. it's not reasonable. And you know what I my goals five years ago are different than my goals right now, you yeah. know? And, um, so what, what did that partnership and, and having other people as partners in the business and the restaurant help me f- to where I am now? It, it really taught me communication. I think communication is so important and that's not something that it's not, hasn't been one of my strong suits, you know, growing up as a kid. Um, it just wasn't, something that came naturally to me in, in a lot of ways. I think you're doing great right now for well, what thank it's worth. You. Thank you very much. <laughs> but where, let's, let's pull back some layers on this because this is huge. It's another one of our core values. You must, we have to communicate. Um, so what, where do you struggle with communication? So I've, I've struggled with communication before where, <clears throat> you know, you, you expect, maybe you expect something from somebody, right? Yeah. And just because you talked about it before, right? Okay. Eric, let's say you're my sous chef in the kitchen, right? And you and I have talked about how this is how I want you to break down a fish. Mm -hmm. This is how I want you to fillet it, scale it, score it and portion it. And I'm going to assume now we went over it once. I'd spent two hours, like dedicated my afternoon to really showing you and whatever. I'm going to assume that you know how to do that now. And that's, and you know, I'm going to let you kind of do it. I'm going to give you the fish yeah. and you're going to, you're going to f- fly on your own and you're going to make a couple of mistakes or whatever. You know, I might expect that if you had a question, you come back to me and you mm. ask me, or I might assume that, you know, I'm going to let you fail a couple of times and then I'm going to come back. And if, if the communication, if I didn't come back to you and say, all right, Eric, it's been two weeks now, you're still not doing this fish the way that we talked about. Let's sit down and do it again. Let's communicate about that. I wasn't great about that you know, four or five years ago. And since this is a really small example of like me being in the kitchen doing it, but you know, I think I'm way better at communicating now and everybody around me helps. And I think, you know, starting with my wife at home, she's a great communicator and thank you, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> oh, a good memory. Yeah. Well, I wrote uh, it down. Okay. <laughs> Shout out to Sarah. Love yeah. you, baby. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm inspired and I'm learning from all areas of my life. And I think, where we are right now at Justo, we have an incredible team. Uh, executive chef Kyle Stamps, general manager Lauren Schaefer, director of operations, who's who is one of my first mentors, Aaron Edwards. Um, you know, our full management team is just so amazing. Um, you know, Olivia Wordy is our bar manager. We have Katie Ellis is our assistant general manager. We got a great chef team. My brother's in the kitchen as our executive sous chef. Uh, and we have to communicate. And, you know, while I may not have a partner per se in this business, I have partnered, I, I look to them as my partners Yeah, and, and I treat them like my partners. I try to, and I, I listen, I value their opinions. 
I try my best to give them a voice and, and let them, you know, manage up to me and, and be honest with me and tell me if I'm making a wrong decision or, you know, we collaborate together on important decision-making processes. And I learned that from having partners at SRV. So I think if I didn't do that and I tried to just open a restaurant on my own for the first time, no partners, we would have failed miserably. Yeah. So what does, what does good communication look like? How were you doing it when you first, you kind of painted the picture of how you did it when you first came in. Uh, basically like you just, you would address, you would communicate and then it would stop. You wouldn't follow yeah. up. There was no follow up. So how do you bake that follow up into your business today where you make sure that there's follow up? I think the the most important thing to start off with communication is is having a clear plan and thought and idea to begin with and and being able to articulate that as best as you can in a very direct and understandable way so that the person that you're speaking to fully understands what you're talking about. First start with the end in mind yeah. and then reverse engineer. Exactly. Right? This is where we're going. This is what it's going to look like. Let's go there. And then a week later, is this what we discussed then? You yeah. Know, like, and, how can I get you there? Yeah. And, and creating, you know, setting those expectations. Again, something I learned with having partners. It's okay. This is, this is what I'd like, or this is, let's talk about this. This is, this is our plan. This is our move. This is exactly what I'd like from you from this, uh, you know, giving clear direction, um, making sure that, that person understands and then the follow up. And then it's checking back in after a couple of days. Is there, was there a deadline to, something that we had talked about. Do I, am I, am I missing? Do I need to, do, do I have some sort of deliverable that we talked about me personally? Then I, I hope that that person holds me accountable as well because I'm human as well. And I might miss a deadline yeah. or miss. And, and that also needs to be baked into your, your culture that, Hey, if I'm not doing what I say I'm doing, then you need to call me out on yeah. I, the rules apply to me too. Absolutely. Right. I love this. I'm loving the conversation, man. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to talk about your journey away from SRV and how you created Justo. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a software platform for restaurant people by restaurant people. To be successful in the modern age, you need to be efficient by streamlining your processes and creating automation. Simply put, Margin Edge means data streamlined and insights automated. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. And who likes data entry? No one. So you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with Margin Edge. They will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail. Don't worry about the integration either because Margin Edge allows you to seamlessly connect your POS and accounting systems and get a daily P&L. On top of all of this, Margin Edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes. Plus, you can compare actual cost versus theoretical cost. Find out why over 3,100 restaurants are thrilled to be using Margin Edge. Head to marginedge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for 30 days. There's no contract. There's no setup fee. Plus, you get free unlimited training and support. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable. One more time, marginedge.com slash unstoppable. 
Find out why past guests like Tender Greens and Kava are using Play IQ for their accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Yes, you heard me right. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there is no credit card check, no minimum balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card easily. And I've got to let you know that with Play IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. That's pretty great. Now, I've told you what's new with Play IQ, but you can't forget about all the other features you get with Play IQ, like bill pay and incredible insights and approval of hierarchies. With bill pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bill, and this is all happening online, so no more paper checks. Play IQ bill pay lets you see what's due when, and you can pay by check, ACH, or Play IQ card. Also, with Play IQ bill pay, you can say goodbye to escrow. That's right, no more flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. We've got to talk about Play IQ insights too, because I mean, insights are so important. There's insights to allow you to compare spend by item, vendor, time, period, and location. Man, I love some insights. You can even set alerts. For example, if a price goes outside your agreed contract terms, boom, you get an alert. And then lastly, there's Play IQ custom approval workflows. Only see the invoices you need to, no more duplications of efforts, and no more hunting down approvers. To learn more, head to www.playiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, save 25% off implementation. Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering. This is because Chow Now helps restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. Here's how it works. Chow Now clients get listed on the free Chow Now marketplace. Once they're there, they can meet new customers and take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site. There is no setup fee or monthly payment. Now, this is what I really love about Chow Now. You get access to valuable customer data, which allows you to personalize the experience and the relationship with your guests. In other words, you own the relationship with your guests, something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And we cannot wrap up this message without telling you about how to level up with Chow Now Direct. Chow Now Direct is Chow Now's comprehensive online ordering and marketing package. With Chow Now Direct, you get your own branded ordering app for iPhone or Android, email and print marketing, plus POS integration and much more. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up at www.chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. All right, we're back, and let's start talking about your newest little project here. Your, I shouldn't call it a little project. This thing—it's a—it's a, it's an operation. It's it beautiful. Is, it is a big operation. Yeah, just so is, yeah. is no joke for sure. For sure. So, what inspired this move away from your partners? Uh, so this was um, 
2000 to paint a little picture here, 2019, um, my wife and I found out that we were going to have our first child, our first baby. So, um, you know, it was super exciting time. Uh, you know, SRV was now four years in, we were in a comfortable place in our lives. Um, you know, we had a good routine. We felt, we felt good. We were like, let's have a baby, you know, let's do this. And, um, you know, it's funny. You spend a lot of time with somebody, uh, Michael, Michael and I sat down, Michael Lombardi and I sat down together one day in, you know, early summer of 2019. We're like, Hey, we got, I gotta tell you about something. Michael's like, I gotta, I gotta, I want to talk to you. Like, great. That's awesome. I want to talk to you too. So we sat down outside on the patio. We weren't open yet for for dinner. And he's like, Paige, my wife is pregnant. Like, oh my God, that's amazing. So happy for you. That's great. Wow. Sarah's pregnant too. (laughs) And and it was just so funny. Like, of course we both, you know, we're going through this in our lives at the same time. Um, Because, you know, we both were, were married. We both were, you know, four years into our restaurant, same thing. Like we're both feeling comfortable and feeling good. And like, yeah, you know, it was just, we were both ready at the same time. And that just naturally happened that way. We didn't talk about it. Like, Hey, are you, you trying, are you going to have, who's going first? My yeah, turn. Exactly. Your turn. <laughs> so it was just so funny. It's so ironic that, that, that it happened at the same time. Yeah. Um, so then that was early summer of 2019. Now, you know, we're three months in, right? Cause you can't tell anybody until they're three months. It's yeah. important yeah. that you, anything could happen. Um, so now babies due in about six months, we spend, Sarah and I spend the next three or four months, you know, now we're starting to think like, oh my God, okay, we're having a baby. Oh shit. Like what, what does this mean for us? What do we, you know, now we're starting to think about, okay, are we going to stay in our house that we live in now in Quincy at the time? What is that? You know, is she going to keep working at that job? What does the commute look like? Where's daycare? You know, all these things that, you know, we need to make serious decisions on, um, where's our family? Oh my God. All of our families in Rhode Island, like literally, uh, my brother was living in Massachusetts at the time. Uh, my, all, my parents, all my uncles, aunts, everybody, cousins, Rhode Island, same with Sarah. Um, so eventually we made the decision that it was best for us to, to move back home to Rhode Island and that we wanted to raise our son close to family. So then we were toying around with, okay, so what does that commute look like for me personally living in Rhode Island? Where can we find a house that's close enough to family, but close enough that I don't have a two and a half hour drive to SRV every single day back and forth. Cause I'm not about to drive, you know, work 14, 15 hour days and then drive four hours a day. Like that's, yeah, there's no sense in that. Yeah. I, I've actually, you know, I picked up on this reoccurring theme in your life that like you'd go do something and then home would always call you back. Yeah. You know, like you, I can't be here forever. I gotta go home. Um, and like with, with each rendition out, I feel like you got a little bit closer. So, I mean, initially, initially you went to, to Italy and you came back then you went to New York, which I think is a little bit further away than Boston. Maybe like a two hour drive versus yep. like a, an hour drive. Yep. And then you, you know, you're like, well, that's still a little too far away and I'm, I'm going to go to Paris and I'm, now I'm going to come back and, you know, but you always, there's always something calling you home and I Google mapped it. You're only 15 minutes away from North Kingston now. Yeah. So you're a lot closer to home. Um, is that where you live? Is your house in? I live, we live in Newport. Okay. Yeah. So we're, you know, about five minutes away from the restaurant, which is very great. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. You know, we, we were living in Boston for almost 10 years and that was home to us, yeah. you know? It was great because it was close enough to home and it was, you know, we built this life in Boston restaurant. Sarah had a, you know, great position at, at a nonprofit called empath as 
director of this program, um, the CFO program, you know, we just, we had really good lives and we were really happy, but you know, kids change everything. And yep. that's, you know, all of a sudden what we thought was the most important thing of our lives, our, our careers and our, and our lives together, like traveling and having fun. We, we all of a sudden found ourselves prioritizing, obviously it's so cliche, but you know, prioritizing somebody else over us. And, and we felt the best thing for that person, for our son and for our lives together as a family would be to move to Rhode Island. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I was trying to figure out, do I drive back? And, you know, after thinking about that, I was like, there's no way I can put up with that drive. So we decided to, okay, if we're moving to Rhode Island, we got, we're going to find a house. Let's start looking for a restaurant. You know, let's it. start looking for a space. And, you know, I, I had the conversation with my partners, really hard conversation. I think they understood, you know, cause they, they all had families and kids of their own. And, you know, the, the driving force was, I, I want to raise my son back home in Rhode Island. And, and, you know, everybody understood, everybody understood that. And I think everybody respected that. And so the plan was to, to be closer to family to, that was always the driving force is to, to be closer to family. Right. That's what pulled you away. And I think we, we did identify there was a lot of overlap where you were before too. You know, um, there wasn't that clear, I guess, um, uh, you guys didn't all fall into your own each individual lane. You know, you see yep. a lot in partnerships that work out. You have somebody who's a front of house. You have somebody who's back of house. You have somebody who's back of back of house, who's the numbers person or a lawyer or something like that. And when everybody can divide and conquer that, those partnerships work, uh, it, it can be difficult when you have literally multiple chefs in the kitchen. Yeah. Right? Was that a challenge? It was a challenge. Yeah. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways we were stronger together in some ways we, you know, cross paths or, you know, we're had hiccups along the way for yeah. sure. So, so what do you want to do differently with Justo? How, how is Justo going to be more an extension of you, chef Kevin O'Donnell? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I wouldn't, if I didn't have the partnership and mentorship, to be honest, of my partners, um, at SRV, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do this on my own. And, you know, while there were a million things that I had never done before opening SRV, because, we were very much, you know, when we opened, I was, you know, Michael and I were the chefs. We were in the kitchen. Of course, we learned other things about f from our other partners about the real estate part of it and the, you know, making the deal and the lease and insurance and, you know, how to, you know, deal with city hall and yeah. license, renew licenses. You know, all that stuff came came over time, but it wasn't a crash course in the same way that it would opening, have been, yeah, yeah, doing it on my own. Yeah. So, you know, it gave me the confidence to to do it on my own. Um, so I, I, yeah, I certainly wouldn't have been successful in, in making it this far at Justo without seeing as much as I was able to see and, you know, making the mistakes along the way at SRV with the supportive partners, you know, yeah. being yeah. able to like pick you back up. And, um, that's not to say we haven't made a million mistakes at Justo, <laughs> just different mistakes. Oh, we're going to get into them. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we're into the successes as well, I'm sure. So, um, 2019, your, your wife's Sarah's pregnant. Um, you're saying, was she, was, did Sarah work in the restaurant with you or no, she, cause she's a part of Justo, right? She's, she's, she's a part of Justo. Um, she's about to be even more of a part of Justo. Um, so 2019 we had moved, she, she was working in a nonprofit. Um, she's still there now about, to, about to leave to come to the restaurant, which nice. I'm so excited about nice. and scared. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm really excited. Uh, so yeah, 2019, um, we found the location at Justo. I had kind of heard through the, I, I had always known about this space. Mm. Uh, my father was born in Newport and you know, Sarah and I had both lived in Newport 
both together and in separate apartments, you know, throughout our, our twenties. Um, so Newport has always been a special place to me. So when we were deciding to move back home, our family may not live in Newport right now. Um, but when I come to Newport, I feel, you know, I love Rhode Island. I'm a Rhode Islander people. You know, it's funny that you say like, Oh, you always found your way back. Like that's typical Rhode Islander. Like, (laughs) you know, people just come back. Sometimes you get a way to realize how good you had it when you left in the first place. So Rhode Island is, is great. Newport is special to me because when I come to Newport, especially when I was younger, it, it always felt like I was coming to a new place and, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't feel like the rest of Rhode Island. It was this really cool, special, beautiful place with different people and travelers and, you know, it just felt like I was kind of getting away. Yeah. Um, so coming and moving to Newport was the move. We knew it. We were like, we're, we're going to move to Newport. We're going to, we're going to find a place. We're going to find a home. Um, so this location where Justo is, is a brand new building uh, before, and it's right on the water too, like prime location, like kind of ground zero for just boats in the water and, and like, you know, people walking around tourists, whatever. It's a, it's an awesome spot. Um, before this building, it's Hammett's hotel is the, what they built here. And then Justo is a restaurant, independent restaurant that's part that's built in the hotel. It was a parking lot, you know, just a big parking lot in a beautiful location. And it's like, you know, what a, what a waste of beautiful waterfront real estate, you know? And in some ways it was, it was tough for people from Newport because, you know, it's change and it's understandably so like not everybody loves change. And, you know, even if it was just a parking lot, they also did like, you know, music, there were concerts here. They threw like an ice skating rink here in the winter. There was some, you know, kind of nostalgic special things that happened in this space over the past 30, 40 years or whatever. Uh, but this hotel is beautiful and they did such a great job of with the architecture and the, the building materials to make it look and feel like it's part of Newport. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that this was an, a new hotel, honestly. Like walking in, you can tell that it's very uh, like updated. So I just assumed that it was, you know, refurbished or something. Right. Um, but when was this built? As you take a sip of water. Sorry. Yeah. So this <laughs> was um, this was kind of a project in the making since I believe. 2017 or okay. 2016. Um, so are you the first tenant in this space? Yeah. So we, well, the restaurant, I'm sorry, the, uh, the hotel was completed in, uh, I believe it was like May, June of 2020. So when Sarah and I knew that we were going to move home to Rhode Island, yeah. <laughs> when Sarah and I knew that we were going to move home to Rhode Island, we started looking at restaurant spaces. We started looking you know, at the end of the summer, early fall of 2019, mm-hmm. um, which hindsight being 2020, man, how lucky were you to start moving away from the restaurant industry? I mean, did you sell your share to, to the rest of the group before the pandemic? Yes. Yeah. It was, I a, mean, it was a crazy I know time. it wasn't intentional, yeah. like, but wow, you dodged a bullet. Yeah. We, Cause you gave yourself a little bit of a runway, I'm assuming to be able to find the right location. So like, I mean, like I said, like it, it sounds like you got like you got lucky. The timing, the timing was <laughs> in some ways great and in some ways the worst timing in, in the world, yeah. you know? Um, so when we found this space, uh, Justo at Hammett's Hotel, we, I met one of the owners of the, the hotel, Sam Bradner, and um, he personally walked me through the hotel, the space, showed me the restaurant space or what, what they intended to be a restaurant space. At the time, it was just, you know, concrete floors and, and you know, that's it. Um, steel beams. Um we hit it off. You know, I really respected 
and still do. Um, Sam and his partners at, at Peregrine Group, who are our landlords, they've been such amazing landlords. Um, we worked over the you know over the course of the winter on the the lease agreement and um, you know liquor license transfer and all that stuff kind of happened over the winter of where were you transferring the license from if there was no standing space here before? Uh, it's Newport is similar to Boston in that, you know, you have to purchase a license, um, from an existing business. So, so you can only be, you, you can only transfer licenses. You can't create new ones. So correct. Okay. Yeah. Not in Newport at least. Okay, um, so that all took place over the winter. Now we're in 2020. Um, my last day at SRV, you know, I think it was like a, I can't remember the exact day of the week, but it was, it was the last day of February. So, you know, beginning of March comes now. I have a, I have a three month old at home. Um, we're living in Quincy still, and now we're like you know we're, we're putting our house on the market. We had just bought a house in Newport, so we're in the process of moving down to Rhode Island. We signed a lease uh, March eighth or ninth of twenty twenty. We had our but still, man, timing because even the thinking about the housing market, yeah. like you just got in before the housing market. I'm sure this whole area exploded during the housing market. Oh yeah. So between well, we, New York and Boston, yeah. So we had we, we had been looking for a house in Newport, and we found a place that was perfect. You know, had a little apartment attached that was great. Um, so we we got that in February of 2020, and we wanted to do that so that we could have like a nice easy move, and we didn't have to like do the you know we can't close until we sell this place and move in the same day. Like that's a yeah, nightmare. Yeah. So we were fortunate enough to be able to find this place beforehand. So the move down to Rhode Island was going to be, all right, we're, we're listing our home in Quincy. Um, Quincy's just west of Boston for listeners who aren't, aren't familiar with that, that area. You're fine. And <clears throat> put it on the market, open house, like dozens of people at this open house. It was great. Open house was the weekend of March 13th or 14th of 2020. Tons of people came to the open house. We're like, wow, this is going to be great. Like we're going to, you know, we're going to, close this chapter of our lives and be able to move on and, and move to Rhode Island. No problem at all. And then March 15th, I think it was, we had our city hall meeting in Newport to go over like the, the licenses and all that. That was the last city hall before the government shut down on March 16th, Wild. which I think was a Monday or a Tuesday. And then that's when the housing just stopped. So we had a crazy open house. <laughs> And then two days later, government shutdown, zero offers. But also, how much more difficult would it have been to get your the licensing for this business? Oh, it would have been impossible. Yeah, it would, literally, it was the last city hall meeting. So that was and that was a great timing. the ho- The worst timing was the ho- trying to sell our house because <laughs> we had this great you know great open house. Tons of people came to buy it, and then the next day, pff, shut down. But so, I'm, I'm sure that even in the time that things shut down to things start, people starting to realize, oh, this is this is around for a while. I feel like I'm under house arrest. I want to get out of the city. Quincy is still in the city, but it's still not like people living on top of each other. You know? Yeah. There's a little it, more Definitely. Room. Tons yeah. of space. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the timing wasn't great there because okay. we, we didn't have the luxury of being able to ride it out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, we, we just signed you a lease. The we're moving. We, we, <laughs> we're moving to Rhode Island. Like, we got to get rid of yeah. this house. So, anyhow, we, we ended up, it all worked out. Um, we ended up moving down to Rhode Island full time, I think, like the end of April, yeah. beginning of May of 2020. Um, and construction started at the restaurant around mm-hmm. the same time, which was on one hand amazing. It was it, like in the thick of it, of 
the first couple of months of COVID. So it was really scary. So what were the biggest challenges for you as a solo restaurant tour? Uh, I mean, so many challenges. It was, you know, doing, you know, doing a lease by my, without partners. You know, I had, had, you did point out that you had the mentorship of the, your previous partners that you went to. Yeah. I mean, they were amazing. So helpful. But you know, what I, what I knew was really important and valuable is to, you know, find, there are certain things that you save money on and you need to, you know, skim here and there and, and find better deals or whatever legal advice and, um, professional advice, like an attorney or, you know, a tax accountant or whatever is not something worth skimping on. No. And I was fortunate to, to find a really great attorney who's been an amazing partner with us to, to just kind of help us along the way. Um, helped us out big time with this, this lease and did a great job. Um, so valuable. So, you know, going through the lease, doing that on my own was, was a, a huge challenge cause I had never done all that on my own. Yeah. I got to <clears throat> draw attention to an episode. I recently recorded a workshop with, uh, David Halbrin. Uh, he's a attorney out of New York city. We're super well-known attorney. Uh, we did a, le- a whole episode on best practices for lease negotiations. So, Check out episode 861 if you're listening to this. And you're like, I should probably do some homework on that. I'm going to go back. And we addressed it. it. Yeah, check it out, please. Uh, keep going. So other other big challenges, you know, as a kind of solo restaurateur, you know, it starts with, with first of all, it starts with the concept, but, you know, the, the lease is so, so important and yeah. setting yourself up for the future and thinking five, 10 years, 15 years down the road and what is... What does that pro forma and your business plan look like when your rent increases at what year and, you know, what sort of securities do you have and what, what is the landlord responsible for versus you responsible for? What are some aspects of your lease that would have been present to this day if you didn't have an attorney there to advise you against it? Um, You know, they were able to really get, first of all, our landlords were great to work with. So there wasn't that much that... They weren't trying to screw you. They, no, absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. They're they're so fair. They're yeah. they're very good people. They want us to succeed. If you succeed, they succeed. Exactly. Yeah. So all ships rise. But time. you know, they were able to understand that. Um, you know, you don't know when you're going to open. There's a pandemic. There's a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. You know, in in the best of times, in a restaurant opening, you still don't know. You're three months behind. It's just that's just how you're doing good. If you're three months, you're doing good. Yeah, exactly. So you know, being able to, to help work into the lease that, you know, we're not paying rent until, uh, you know, X date to, to ensure that we can get the restaurant open and start bringing in cash to, you know, put build up the inventory, pay the first round, a couple of rounds of payroll, and then we'll, let's start talking about rent. So that was really important because rent is a huge expense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the biggest in, in a, in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, what percentage would you say is a good number to, to be your rent of your total rent I th- or cost? I think it's it's impossible to say each year because uh, sales are going to grow each year. Your rent's going to increase each year. But if you can look at like a 10-year average, um, and this is something that I learned working with my partners at SRV, which is another valuable tool. Yeah. You know, We always looked at like a 6% number. But that number changes. It really depends on your concept. You yeah. know, if you are... Sounds like the RoboCoup's gone. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if you are a concept that you know is going to have high labor because maybe you believe in paying people more, higher, you know, you, you want to make sure everybody has paid time off. You want to have all these benefits, then maybe you need to find a place that the rent is going to be 4% of your sales. Yeah. 
because you know your labor is going to be two percent higher. Mm-hmm. You know, one percent here and there, you got to shift it. A so point makes a big difference. If you know you're going to do a pizza restaurant and you think your food cost might be twenty five percent, that's great. Then you know you can throw a couple more percents into labor to take care of the people that work with you and make sure that they have what they need to, yeah. to succeed and to grow financially. Um, so it really depends. But I think if you look at like a 10 year average, you know, sales typically depending upon the concept, depending upon where you are in, in the country, they're going to grow pretty fast, like year two and three. And they might like hit a little bit of a plateau at a certain point where law of diminishing returns. Exactly. It's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to yeah. happen. Um, so, you know, the, the rent increases don't necessarily stop unless you are, smart enough or, or capable enough to, to know, all right, have that foresight. It's going to, it's going to pop off in like year three. I'm going to do, I'm going to crush the sales. We're finally going to know who we are as a business. And but year six and seven, right. And they say about every five years you have to refresh. You yeah. get about, you've got about a, a five year runway on things on your status quo. After that fifth year, what's going to change? What, how, how are we going to stay fresh? How can we bring people back? Because people don't, I mean, they, it's, your your regulars they'll, they'll be loyal for only so long until there's something else that pulls them away. There's things that can pull you them away, so you have to pull them back. It can't just be relationships. Your employees might go on and do different things, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can't rely on your employees to be there for their entire career, you know. Right. Like they're going to grow too, so you got to stay fresh. Absolutely. Um, so the, the thing, so what I'm hearing from you is that what you worked into the lease is uh, basically a, you give yourself a little bit more runway to 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 guarantee success. Exactly. And that, and no, I couldn't. We couldn't have done that without our attorneys or finding the right landlord because yeah. that's so important. Your landlord, you know, if you're fortunate enough to buy your own real estate, good for you. That's amazing. Um, that'd be the best case scenario, obviously. But you know, that's not the case for most first, second time restaurant owners. It's, um, a landlord is your partner in a lot of ways. And if you can't find somebody that you want to work with, because you're going to have to call them for things and they're going to have to call you for things. And, um, you know, it needs to be somebody that you trust. It needs to be somebody that you respect that, you know, ask around if there's, if they're landlords and they own other real estate, go ask those businesses. Hey, how's, (laughs) how's this, you know, how's this person as Anything a landlord? You know, yeah. are they good people? Yeah. Are they, are they fair? If you, you see know, eyes, people's eyes get really big when you ask the question, yeah. and they're like, oh, he's, they're great. Yeah, they're fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then look at the building too. Is that's really important too because that'll tell the story of how how invested not only financially but also like emotionally they are and how how much they care about the businesses there. If you go to a building that has four retail units and you're thinking about leasing one of those spaces and the exterior of the building looks not good. Yeah. And the, the driveways or the landscaping is kind of, things aren't going to change for you. Nothing's changing for you. Yeah. But what about specifically the uniqueness of a hotel? All right. That's an interesting question because I had never, you know, I'd worked in like a smaller boutique hotel before, um, or I worked in the restaurant part of the small boutique hotel and that was, that was great. But, you know, there were certain aspects of it that I was like, oh man, I'm never going to work in, I never want a hotel restaurant. That's not, yeah. that's not me. That's not what I want. You know, I, room service is like a whole nother animal, you know, it, it's challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah. When I met Sam from Peregrine, our landlords, you know, in the conversations that I had with them, the hotel that, that I knew that they were building was a hotel that I knew that I would want to be a part of because 
it was different. It was unique. It wasn't just like any other hotel. They didn't want to do room service. They didn't build the rooms to kind of accommodate room service um, because we're in Newport. We're in the waterfront of Newport. Why you don't come to Newport to sit in your hotel room and eat and you come to enjoy the town, enjoy the city, come to Justo, sit at the bar, come in, come in to eat. So that was, that was at the forefront of their, their kind of design process was, it was an intentional move to make the hotel more of like a metropolitan feel, um, on the waterfront of Newport. You know, it's yeah. same thing. You don't go to New York to like sit in the hotel room. You go to New York to enjoy New York and go out to all the restaurants and museums and whatever. So, um, that was exciting to me and, and being a part of this particular hotel, it's beautiful and they take great care of it and they care about the facilities. They care about the people. Um, so it, you know, even though it's part of the hotel, it has its own separate entrance. You don't, you don't go into the hotel. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I was like, get there. I was like, I, I, was, I wanted you to come to it. That's huge. That's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. People need to know you need, it, it almost needs to feel like it's its own entity. And if, if you're a, ho- a restaurant in a hotel, you can't, you need storefront. You need, you need street visibility because people will never know you're there. And I noticed that when I came, I was like, good, they got yep. that part. Yeah, the signage is great, you know, and there's, if you're walking to, this is at Hammett's Wharf. So Hammett's Hotel is big, beautiful, blue, and kind of brick building at Hammett's Wharf. This is the only building at Hammett's Wharf. So when you're walking down America's Cup Ave, which is like, you know, Main Main Street in Newport, in between Thames Street and Upper Thames Street, which are the kind of, you know, shopping, the brick alley roads, like the old town of Newport, uh, Hammett's Wharf, as you're walking up to it, it's the b- big, beautiful, like grand sign that says Hammett's Wharf, very inviting, mm-hmm. big archway that looks, all you can see from the street is just water and sailboats and mm-hmm. boats and, and then the Justo sign. So walking up from the street, it's inviting and you're the first thing you see is Justo. Yeah. If you guys are not watching the video portion of this interview, shame on you. Just so you know, we are capturing video and we, uh, we have, there'll be B roll of everything that Kevin's talking about right now. So if you want to see what we're talking about, head over to our YouTube channel and please subscribe while you're there. We're trying to grow that sucker. Thank you in advance. Sorry for the plug. No, it's necessary. <laughs> Keep going, man. So wait, actually, um, you're painting the picture of the things you need to consider for real estate and how important that is. The least negotiation. I want to talk about team. Um, you, cause you didn't just come here and say, okay, I'm like, I'm doing this by myself. You, you put a team together. So take us through that, that process of putting a team together and what you learned about how to do that. Yeah. So, um, that's something that, you know, I've always been, I love teaching. I love, I love the teamwork. I've always played, you know, I was played sports, my, my whole life as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love the team, you know, atmosphere of a restaurant. Um, when we, when I knew that, um, we were going to open a restaurant in Newport, there were two people that I called, you know, you, you start after being in Newport, or sorry, in Boston for nine years, you know, I knew a bunch of people. If I had opened a restaurant in Boston, there could have been, you know, 15 people that I would have given a call. I mean, like, Hey, you know, let's, let's do this restaurant. I'm all, yeah. You know, let's open a new restaurant. This is the concept. What do you think? Like, do you want to end? Do you want to be a part of the process? Whatever in Rhode Island, even though I'm from Rhode Island, I haven't worked, I hadn't worked in Rhode Island yeah. in 15 plus years. Your professional networks in Boston. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and there were two people that I gave a call to. The first was, uh, 
Kyle Stamps, who's our, our executive chef here. And he and I have known each other for a long time. We've worked together at three or four different restaurants. Um, he was also a chef in Boston, but he's from Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd give him a call. We met in Newport one day for lunch, sat down. This was like, you know, bef in 2019 at, at some yeah. point before the lease was signed, before anything really, like still like conceptually was, was forming together as a restaurant. Kyle was at ground zero of that, nice. that process. Um, so we sat down for lunch. It's like, Hey, Sarah and I are moving back home to Rhode Island. We want to open a restaurant. He's, and he, he didn't even say anything. He said, I'm in. Yes. That was it. Like I didn't have to tell him what it is or where it was. He's like, I'm in. Let's do it. Nice. So that was invaluable. Like he's he has done so much for this restaurant and this team and built built an amazing kitchen team. And like he I will forever be grateful to that nice. that man right there. Uh next call was Aaron Edwards. Aaron Edwards. At at the time, he and I were just kind of like spitballing ideas and you know, looking to him more for um, advice and mentorship and, you know, as a, as a friend, but also as a mentor, cause he was one of my first, um, really valuable mentors and was always a friend. And we started talking about it and, you know, he was happy in his relatively happy at his position when, when we were talking about this in 2019. And then all of a sudden that just kind of grew into this. Well, oh, maybe I'll just, why don't we just open this? Why don't you just come on board and you could be the general manager. You could, you know, Kyle be so the chef, and where was Aaron in his career at this point? Because he he was a general manager of uh, like a nice golf course, country club in Rhode Island. Got it. Um, but he had been a chef his whole life, so the value that Aaron one of the values that Aaron brings is you know he's done all the different positions and kind of ran all sorts of different properties. Every anything from like a, yeah. a small Italian trattoria style restaurant, which was his where I worked at with him. Yep all the way up to like being the chef of the Navy base in Newport up to, uh, you know, a general manager of a, of a country club. So, you know, the, the different range of operations that he's been a part of, um, and the knowledge and kind of experience that he brings to the table was invaluable as well. So yeah. that was a, that was kind of an easy process. And so between Kyle, Aaron and I, we were the first three to like, let's, let's talk about this restaurant. Let's create this restaurant. Let's, you know, they would come, we'd come to the space. We'd kind of work through the concept together and what do we need? How's the flow going to be? They helped in a little bit with the design. We hired a great interior decorator, interior designer, um, great architecture firm. And they, so they were able to kind of offer insight and input into that process because they were a part of it since, since day one. Yeah. Oh, so you mentioned in the, your first go at, at ownership, one of the things you learned was kind of fine tuning the details of the partnership agreement, who's responsible for what in lanes. How did you take that lesson and apply it here? What did you do differently here? So knowing, you know, my knowing exactly, you know, I think a, a big thing, what another part of the, my personal problem when we opened SRV was that I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't see my future. I didn't know my end goal. You know, there's ne for me, there's never an end goal. It's just like, what is the next goal? I'm always, I always like to keep evolving and yeah. doing more things, but you know, I didn't have a clear vision in my head and understanding of what I wanted in life. And I know that now. So How old were you when you, when you opened SRV? I was, uh, 30. 30 and yeah. now you're 36, 30, uh, 30, oh no, 38, 38. 38. Damn man. Getting yeah. old. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot has changed in eight yeah. years. You, you know, had a lot 30, of clarity 30, during that time. A lot of clarity. 
and you know, I feel grounded. I feel, I, you know, I have a family, I have an amazing wife and, and son and I'm close to my family. So I know what I want, you know, and, and it's very clear to me and it was very clear to me before we opened Justo. So knowing I need an amazing team and I need to partner with a chef that, that cares and has just as much passion about teaching and grooming and taking care of people as I do, Kyle's that person. Mm -hmm. And I need somebody that, that same thing in the front of the house that has the care and the passion and the, and the, the experience to be able to run the operations and know and understand how a business operates and how to make it, you know, run smoothly and successful. So input Aaron there. So knowing since day one of Justo, what my goals are and what my dreams are, we're able, I was able to build the the systems and the team so that I'm not the person that's, you know, behind the stove every single day. That's if that's not what I want to do in 10 years, then I need to know how to build a team to be able to support that both financially to, because it's going to cost more money to hire more people and to have the talent back there doing it um, and to train it and know how to, you know, delegate and create systems that are long lasting and, and sustainable for everybody, myself and the chefs and the managers and the servers and you know, every single person. So what were your goals? What was your dream? Uh, for, for Justo specifically, you know, I have, I want this, I want this restaurant and this business to be a sustainable place for people to, to work at and I want it to be a job that feels that they feel good coming to work and that they feel valued, that they learn, that they feel appreciated. And that's not like a COVID, you know, outcome. I think a lot of what COVID did, a lot of what COVID did was a lot of good was open everybody's eyes. Like, my God, we can't treat people like this. Oh my God, we can't pay people this low wage. We were forced to stop and reflect. And th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is something that's always been a dream of mine is yeah. how do I make a a business that's both both balanced and sustainable financially for me? Like it has to I have to be able to make a living to mm-hmm. do it. Um but also I think, yeah, I think it's weird if, like this industry is kind of Profit adverse, like we're afraid to admit that we want money, and we and it's almost like you're guilty if you if you make profitability a priority. Yeah. I really do think that fiscal, you know, fiscal responsibility needs to be a core value for all the reasons you just listed. Because you need to make sure people feel valued, appreciated, and secure and safe. Like that takes money, mm-hmm. you know, to to do this. You need money to make people feel to create opportunity for people to make people feel valued to give them like little like raises within or promotion within the organization to, to this all takes money. You got to bake fiscal responsibility into your business. So that was important to you. You, you wanted this. You, yeah. So uh, how, how did you make sure you were going to get it? You know, I think <clears throat> having, you know, the having no partners, uh, one of the benefits of that is, there's only one person that needs to make a living from the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to make a crazy living. I don't need to drive a crazy car. I don't need to have, you know, a mansion house and all this yeah. fancy stuff. Like I want to make an honest living. I want to be comfortable. I want to be able to take trips when I want to take trips and like enjoy my life with my family, of course. So, I, you know, that takes money. But 
only one person surviving off the bottom line versus four people surviving off the bottom line, it's easier to make those decisions because it's coming out of, out of my pocket and I don't have to go to somebody else and say this, I feel like this is the best move for this person, for this team, for this company, for this enterprise and, and for the guests too, to pay this person more or to give them time off or to give them this you know, benefit or pay them more, whatever it is. It's an, it's easier to do, you know, having only one person yeah. in, in a lot of ways. So you also mentioned that you were going to bake in systems and processes to, to guarantee, to ensure you were going to be profitable, to, to ensure people were going to have an education and feel valued and get into that. What does that look like? How did you do that? So, you know, it's, I think it starts with having a big enough team and taking care of those people, everybody, um, giving them your, giving them the time, like making sure that everybody has enough time to do their jobs and giving them the tools that they need to do their jobs. So, you know, every restaurant I've ever worked at, and don't get me wrong, we're, sh- we're short staffed right now. We're yeah. hiring right now. If you go on Indeed, there's my <laughs> special plug. We need cooks and servers. <laughs> Um, you know, we're about to go into the summer. It's like, we're always going to be hiring. We'll share contact information. (laughs) (laughs) But we have, we have a big enough and talented enough team that if somebody needs to be out sick for a week, they don't feel guilty being out sick. You're not laying the team down. Yeah. If a manager wants to take a vacation and it's beautiful out and that's okay. Guess what? Another manager is not going to work six days a week because that's how we built the team. And I've never worked at a restaurant before that, that's the case to be honest. It's like somebody goes away, somebody else has to work. But what we did was just build a team big enough to know that if somebody's away or somebody's out sick or somebody is on vacation or whatever, there's somebody else to fill in. So we're in a lot of ways, we're almost always slightly overstaffed in certain departments, even though we may need like more cooks and servers, but the management team is, is full. So they have the support that they need and we also, if, if we ask them to work a six day in, in a, in emergency, we pay them for it. Yeah. I've never worked Double at, time over time. What does that look like? Um, it's, it's like about their hour. Like if you figure out their hourly rate or whatever, it's like, it's actually, this is for salary and for salary. Okay, employees. Okay. So it's like, you know, if, if you're working five days a week and oh my God, there's a crazy emergency. I need you to come in. Like, yeah we pay you for a sixth day. It's and not that, expected. It's not expected. Yeah. Um, well, it's not like you're going to get compensated for your time. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I've never been at a restaurant like that either. Salary yeah. employees get habitually taken advantage of because a cook show. A gotcha. Cook, you're on salary. Yeah, a, cook, yeah. a cook didn't show up today. Great. Sous chef, you're called in or you have to stay late now because this person didn't call, you know, and, and we're not going to, we don't have to pay you more because you're on salary. Yeah. And that's just not right. You know, you're expected to work 70, 80 hours a week and that's yeah. just not fair or right. So are your, hours like how do you so you have more staff are you doing shorter shifts or like how do you build that in in a way that we can replicate that so we that's that's a good question um you know we again because we're an independent restaurant there's not a a ton of people that are part of that decision making process with like what the the fiscal responsibility of the business and you know okay we have to open later or we need to shorten our hours in order to if this is the team that we have right now, what, what can we do with this team? How does, how does the business adapt to us? Not we adapt to the business. Exactly. Got it. So that's really important and, and making decisions that are best for the team. There's a constant balance that we're always, um, you know, thought process that we're always going through in our heads and it's what's best for the team. 
what's best for the for the business and what's best for the guests. So those three things are constantly that's what we're weighing constantly. And in all of our decision making process, it's not like you know, always looking out for the guests or always looking out for the bank account or always looking out for the 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 team. The team almost always comes slightly ahead or we're always finding a way to make it the best of both worlds for everybody. Um, and that's something that I think you get and you learn from working at enough businesses where, like I mentioned earlier, it's, there was a chef owner that are, a couple different chef owners, because that person's going to run the business, the business slightly different than a, you know, a bar or a wine sommelier or a general manager owner might do. They might be similar, but they're going to think about things a little differently and how they run the business. And then what does a real estate person do if they own a restaurant? How do they operate it? What does a investor or you know somebody that's not even in the restaurant do? What does somebody that treats it like a passion project that doesn't care about the money? What you're talking about is one of the biggest lessons I've learned. I It, it, came, it came up in the e-myth. Uh, I think David Scott Peters, who is a restaurant consultant, said it really well. You want to create system-dependent operations, not people-dependent operations. If somebody goes down, the restaurant can't go down with it. And, and that's what these people who are realtors or investors, they build systems and they plug amazing people into those systems. But if the, if the, a person goes down, the restaurant still goes. It's hard to do and have high quality because high quality hinges on creative people and talented people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not easy, but it's possible. Yeah. So it's, I think about, it's a balance. It's a constant, you know. Let's play this scenario out. Let's think this all the way through. Let's poke holes in this. In this, and it's constantly idea. evolving, and, it, and it's constantly evolving. yeah. And that's the other yeah. thing. It's 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 a dynamic. It's malleable. It's it's constantly. Today we're going to be one percent better than we were yesterday. Yep. Right. Uh, so, what is your lane today? What is your role? You're not an investor. You're not a real estate person. You're not any of those things. You're a chef. I'm a chef, but I'm I'm more of a I'm like a supporting cast member. I think is probably the best way to put it. And. Um, you know, what I'm trying to do is get people, bring the best out of people and, and let them give them the the stage and give them the chance to make great, you know, make great decisions and come up with great ideas. And, you know, I'm right there with them. So I'm still, you know, in the kitchen as much as I can be, I'm a part of the menu changes and development with the chefs and helping them, um, you know, along the way and how do we come up with like this creative process and create food that is justo. I'm a part of that. And, yeah. you know, I try to be as much of a part of that in the bar side too with, you know, I love wine. I love beer. I love cocktail. I love all that stuff. I'm passionate about it. I'm not nearly as, um, you know, equipped like intelligence wise to know all the different grape varietals and et cetera. But I, it's overwhelming. It's, it's exciting to <laughs> yeah. me and I'm passionate and I know what we want. You know, we created that wine list together at the beginning with, okay, this is what the wine program looks like at Justo. You know, we created that together. So it's not like, you know, I'm not a part of the wine. They're not bringing me a glass of wine and say, can you bring, can we put this on the menu? Absolutely not. Like these, the people that are in charge of the wine list are amazing and so capable and passionate and smart and know what the end goal is. This is what we want the wine program to be. And they know the wines that are going to fit that program better than I do. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed in the wine program, uh, you do sustainable. Um, wait, where, where did I put the 
so here it is biodynamic wines that's a key word that i saw on your website what does that mean biodynamic wines so biodynamic is not necessarily organic um it could be using organic practices it's almost like a like a a mindset and how they're treating the earth the grapes the 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 vinification process um all along the way you know no chemicals um you know, it doesn't have to be hand harvested, but a lot of biodynamic uh, producers are hand harvesting. Why is that? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to get somebody in here that really, <laughs> those, really those knows. But that you were talking there's about definitely yeah. there's definitely a value. You think about like a machine that's ripping grapes off of a off of vines and what that does to the vines and what the that homes that those does to the, the earth that yeah. it's, that machine is driving over and you know how if somebody's walking up to a vine and snipping it with scissors and putting it gently <laughs> into a basket, like singing a song while they're doing it. Well, there's like also the gonna... carbon footprint associated with Absolutely. that machine. Yeah, know? totally. So, so uh, the, yeah, the biodynamic, um, natural kind of wine, it's not a hundred percent, but using, you know, finding the most important thing for us is delicious, you know, yeah. and a value to the guests that they're not paying crazy prices for, the tricky thing with a lot of natural wines is they're very inconsistent or they're not, you know, they, they're a little kind of not shelf stable where they might go bad fast or you might not even know one bottle might go bad in a batch and the other one won't. Um, so it's tricky to work like that with having all natural wines. Um, so I guess what I'm curious about, we, we, we spent some time earlier today talking about, uh, the things, the, the unique selling propositions of SRV, right? What are the unique selling propositions? propositions of Justo. Like how are you guys drawing people in? How are you popping? How are you really different than everybody else? So if you look at, you know, if you look at Rhode Island as a whole, um, a lot of Italian immigrants here, um, you know, I think there's some really great restaurants in Rhode Island. There's, there's a handful of ones that I think are really spectacular that are doing some really cool, fun, different things outside the box. Um, but I think in general too, like people in Newport specifically, there there's a lot of like touristy type restaurants, and that's that's great. You know, that's it's a tourist destination. You you need restaurants that, you know, if people come to Newport, they're like, all right, I need to have clam cakes, clam chowder, fried calamari, uh, you know, some sort of seafood dish, yeah. fish and chips. You know, it's you, you come to a seaside yeah. town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you need that. That's important to the to the economy. It's I think it's. It's part of the DNA of the, of the city, and I don't think it should ever go away. Mm-hmm. But where Newport, you know, has is, is certainly gotten much better the past, like, 10 years, 5 or 10 years, there's, there hasn't always been a lot of independent restaurants doing different things, you know, and, and offering an experience that's, that's more of, you know, tells a story about who's behind it or, you know, the city or the state or, what, you know, th- there's no story. It's mm-hmm. just like... There's clam chowder, there's clam, which is great. Again, like can't can't get discount that. But. Which brings us to freestyle Italian cooking. Yes. What is that? So freestyle Italian cooking to me kind of came from, you know, going back to SRV. You know, I've always worked in Italian restaurants. Love Italian food. I'm I'm super passionate about it. Um, SRV was a or is a Venetian restaurant. So Venice is a port city in uh, in Veneto, the northeast of Italy all the way up, all the way up in, in Italy. It's not even close to Rome. It's nowhere close to Florence. Sicily's like, you know, a whole nother country away, basically. Um, so the cuisine in Venice is very specific. 
and it's very unique to Italy. Um, we created that that restaurant, and we were very true to Venetian cuisine. We kind of colored outside the lines a little bit and went into some of the surrounding regions for inspiration, mm-hmm. but the food and the menus and the the kind of stylistic approach that we took to the food was was very Venetian. And on one hand, that was great because it pushed our creativity. You know, when you have when it's something is so specific, it forces you to learn, which was a ton of fun um, because I was kind of always learning about something new about Venetian. Yeah, the history cooking. of that city. Yeah, but at a certain point. There's only so many traditional dishes from Venice, right? Yep. There's only so many plays you can do on uh, liver and onions or Risi Bisi or Bacala Manticato or some of these like really famous Italian uh, Venetian dishes. So at a certain point, it felt kind of restrictive, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it was tough. You put into a box. You put into a box. Yeah. And I wanted, I wanted to, I loved the entire country. When I lived there, I literally traveled the whole, the whole country. I would go it'd be my day off and I'd say, all right, today I'm going to go to, uh, I'm a tree Jay. Did you do it on a scooter? Cause I just, I can just see you on a scooter driving. I around wish, Italy. I wish I have a scooter now, but no, I had this like little, uh, Fiat, like tiny, nice. tiny Even Fiat better. that was, um, the, our, my boss's wife's like old car. So it was just like an old beater that was just you know, like <laughs> driving down the road. It was great. Um, so we'd go, you know, it'd be my day off and I'd say, I'm going to go to, I'm a tree Like, What's an amatrice? Bucatini or spaghetti alla matriciana. And that's it. That's like what you go there for. And it's, it's a world famous dish. And so I, you know, I'd go to a town like amatrice and I'd research to know like, okay, what are the dishes or what are the wines or whatever that I need to have while I'm there? The cheeses that they make there, the cured meats. And I would just go to as many restaurants as I could. Even if it was in one day, I'd go to three different trattorias and I'd eat, I'd eat amatriciana at all three. Mm. Back to back, you know, for three lunches. Um, and that's how I learned regional f- foods of Italy. And I would do that all over the place. Piedmont, Sicily, Puglia. You know, I, I went everywhere and I did that. So I love regional Italian cooking. So it was tough at SRV because, I, I you know, I love yeah. all the foods of Italy. So for us at Giusto, freestyle Italian, it means a couple of things. It's, first of all, it's it's regional Italian. You know, we, we draw inspiration from the entire region. Um but it's also, it's not traditional Italian cooking. It's not Italian American cooking. It's not Rhode Island cooking. It's it's our own cooking, and yeah. it's you know we're cooking Italian food that we hope you can't get anywhere else. That you know we're we're drawing inspiration. We're bringing Italy and Rhode Island together in our in our background. Kyle and I, you know, are, are nostal- things that like are nostalgic to us that we love. You know, maybe it's something that made us feel special growing yeah. up as a kid, like. To me, that's what cooking is anyway, which what cooking should be like. You're just throwing things together with what you have. You open the fridge. What needs to get used before it goes bad? Well, we're using that. And what do I need to go get to the store to round this off? And that's what I think cooking should be. And that should be seasonal. You know, like cooking should be freestyle. That that's the most sustainable way to cook. But when you're using a recipe constantly, like it takes some of that like creative freedom out of it. It takes the fun out of it. It totally does. And when you're cooking like from passion and from your heart, where you're just there's no there's no it's freestyle. There's no boundaries. There's no you're allowed to color outside the box. You know, we follow certain kind of traditional Italian rules. Like, well, we'd never put cheese with um, with fish, or you know, because it overpowers it. There's a reason why. But you know, we we don't break any of the the sacrilegious Italian rules or, um, but we're trying to, we're trying to cook food that 
you know, we're not thinking, all right, it has to be from this region or it needs to be X, Y, and Z. No, it needs to be delicious and it needs to be inspired by Italy and it needs to have something that tells a story about Rhode Island and where we, where we come from and why it's at Justo. So like our, our thought, creative thought process with how we come up with the food is, is a fun, is, is fun. And it's a, it's a collaborative process that's exciting. You know, awesome. Uh, what about, so that's the food, the unique selling proposition in the food, but what about on the, 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 I guess, profitability side of things? How are we going to make sure, how are we going to big profitability into this? So with, you know, we, we have very like strict kind of numbers that we're trying to hit, you know, labor, we always, we know that we want to pay people more. We know that we want a larger team to support people's time off and, you know, not overwork people and not stress people out that they can't take a sick day if they, if they're yeah. sick, including yeah. managers, you know, I, I worked at so many restaurants that I was a manager that I never took a sick day because it was like, no, you got the flu, you got a cold, you got whatever, unless you have like norovirus or something that you're going to get yeah. somebody else sick, you show up to work. Yeah. And we're trying to create this place that eliminates that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in order to do that, it's higher labor. So we, we know we have higher labor, so we need to have lower cost of goods like food and, and beverage. Um, so, so how do you have low? So if you're trying, if you're pinching penny on the most important thing, some people would argue is that it has to be delicious. How are you doing that? How are you, how are you delivering quality at, at discount? So ta- talent, I think acquiring talent, you, you get what you pay for. If it, if that labor is more expensive then sure your labor costs are going to be higher, but they're, they're going to be able to produce a higher quality product with less, with less time as well. Okay. So that's really important to us is finding the right people and paying for, you know, paying for that talent the experience. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, that's super important. And then, you know, we don't mill our own flour here. We make amazing pasta. The person that, that, um, her name is Nancy. She is a dream. She makes beautiful pasta. Um, she actually worked at Del Posto in New York making pasta there. Um, so super fortunate to be able to work with her and, and the rest of the team as well knows how to make pasta, but um, you know, we don't mill our flour, so it's not crazy expensive. We're still using good ingredients in it and, you know, obviously handmaking raviolis and yoki. And yeah. But I will stuff. say this, there are now a lot more, you're starting to see local mills starting to pop up in that for a while, you know, general mills took that job away for a yeah. lot of people, you know, but we're recognizing there's a call for it. There's a demand for it. So you're, that's a whole vertical within our industry that's starting to take off again is local milling. So totally. know where those mills are, you know, yep. you don't have to do the, the work, but know where to support, how to support those people who are trying to do it the right way. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, it's also about knowing, so Newport is a seasonal place. Yeah. You know, we <clears throat> we're in our second full year. Now we opened in September of 2020. We we're a little late and delayed in our opening, right? It's, it's 2020. <laughs> We were able to open in September. We, we had to close down in December for COVID. Yeah. The restrictions in place, the, the cases were rising rapidly. It was just safer for us to close down for a couple of months. So we ended up closing <clears throat> January and February of 2021. We reopened in March. Um, so we haven't seen a full year yet. As I say, it's, about a, it's been about a year almost. Yeah. yeah so this, this January, so 2022, will be our first full year. Do so you think we, that worked in your favor? Uh, yes and no. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough to tell. Cause you kind of, you, you got the liberty of slowly scaling in. Whereas I think in other places you have to hit the the ground running. Oh, okay. And I see what you're, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you got to slowly turn on the, the nozzle and it wasn't your fault. You know what I'm saying? We had uh yeah, we, when we opened up, we were at 50% occupancy. So yeah. we had like 
the longest uh, soft opening in <laughs> exactly. restaurant history. It was yeah. a four month. People are just happy opening. to be out. They're like, yeah. you can spit in my face for all I care. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. So, you know, it, you know it was, all things considered, it was super hard. But yeah. the first four months that we were open were, you know, fairly smooth. And it was like, oh my God, we just opened a restaurant in the middle of a pandemic and it was yeah. successful and we survived and we did it. And the team is great. And the feedback is amazing from the town. You know, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. So closed down, reopened. Now we're open for the first summer in Newport. And it was like 2021, March, gloves come off. Everybody's like, we got vaccines. We're going back. COVID's over. March 2021, <laughs> it doesn't exist. It's a thing of the past. So people are going nuts. And we were crazy busy, you know, right from the gate. Um, and last summer was really hard because like so many other businesses, but restaurants especially, in 2021, it was like the great labor shortage of, of the century. Yeah. And... <clears throat> It was also our first summer of this. Yeah. So of, everybody, you're the hot spot. It was down. hard. Yeah. It was really hard. So now going into this season with the team that we have, I feel so, you know, like I, we're ready. We yeah. are, we are a great restaurant, I think. And I, we have, we have a great team. We're capable. Everybody's smart and passionate um, and experienced and ready and optimistic too. Yeah. Kevin, is there anything we have not discussed up to this point that you want to make sure comes out of today's interview? Uh, you know, I think we, we touched on like what, what is, what makes this restaurant different? And Mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about the food. We locked, we talked a little bit about, you know, the wine program and you know, what we do as a business to make it financially successful as well. Um, but the community aspect of it is really important. And I think, that's something that's always at the forefront of our minds. Um, you know, it's one of our core values is, is being part of the community and Newport is an amazing city and you know, it's never going away. It's not, you know, a recession could come or anything could come and it's, it's on the water. It's beautiful. The history, the architecture, the people here, the other businesses that are around, you know, we just did a fundraiser for uh, world central kitchen last week and you know, in two hours we raised over eight thousand dollars wow. getting other restaurants and other businesses together. And the sense of community that we have in this town is is like inspiring. Yeah. And it makes me look forward to the future of being here in Newport and the you know, the opportunity that is that is here. So I think another thing, like anybody that's listening that wants to open their own business, location has always been something that's that you know, that the key thing. Location, 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 but you know, obviously that's from a business perspective. What's the foot traffic like? What is the visibility like? You know, is there parking, et cetera? All those things play into the business, but what is the community like? What yeah. what community do you want to be a part of? Who is your clientele going to be coming in here? The people that come into our restaurant that support us year round are some of the best people and so generous and so appreciative of having a new restaurant like Justo because we are different. We're not like a lot of the other restaurants on the waterfront and I think a lot of people, I was afraid that we might scare Rhode Islanders or, or Newport locals away because we, we were different, but we've been welcomed with open arms and I'm forever yeah. grateful and so thankful that people understand us and appreciate us and, and see all the hard work that the team puts into like opening the restaurant. Yeah. And uh, Chris Dimmick, past guest on the show, a good friend, uh, tapped into this uh, with his restaurant. He mentioned this during his restaurant. Uh, he opened a Sueno in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And he said, don't be afraid to do crazy shit if you're in the middle of nowhere because people look 
into their phone and they see that crazy shit. They're used to that yeah. crazy shit. They want that crazy shit. <laughs> they, they, they hate that they don't have that crazy shit. So be the crazy shit and you'll be like, and be, have that juxtaposition because you're going to draw people in. They want that. They want to, they want to experience it beyond their phone, you know, and be that for them. Um, so the mission statement is to inspire empower and transform the industry. You've definitely inspired us, man. Uh, you've definitely empowered us. You shared some great advice. Uh, what, how have you transformed? Who are you today versus the man you were when you first, you know, let's just say over the past seven years, how have you transformed? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that much, you know, I'm, I'm much more understanding of, I can't do everything myself. And, you know, I've always been, I think a, a chef's mentality and, you know, I still not to say I don't struggle with this sometimes because I, sometimes I take off more than I can chew. Um, but you have to ask for help. You have to ask for support and you ha- you have to know how to delegate and how to do it in a constructive way. And I think that I've learned so much and grown so much the past seven or eight years since, you know, since my first time opening a restaurant my, when I was 30 that, you know, I think that I'm, much more effective and able to do way more now because it's not because I can do more myself. It's because I'm able to, I've learned how to delegate, how to let go of certain things that, you know, I can't do it all myself. Yeah. Um, so that's been really helpful. So I believe in transforming the industry by one transforming one person at a time by sharing this knowledge, by empowering them, we will transform the industry. But ultimately the goal is to transform the world how how can we be better what can the restaurant industry do better to be a part of the solution moving into the, the future uh that's a great question i think that you know treating people better and honest and fair and transparency is so important and you know having a balance like sometimes this decision might be better for the bank account and and maybe it's not better for this person or it's not better for the guest, but if we don't do this for the bank account, this restaurant is not going to be around to be better for the team yeah. or be better for the guests. And I think that we need to, we need to do a better job of inclusion and having people offer their opinions and insights and not being afraid to be honest with their coworkers, their bosses. So, you know, being mentors and leaders and kind of like, cultivating that is so important to be able to allow people to be honest. There's a term for what I believe you're saying is open book management is being transparent with everything that you do in the business, why you do it. But the beauty of what happens with that is now you you're opening yourself up to the potential energy of all the minds that you're, you have on your team. Like a brain is a battery and if you can hook your battery up to all those other batteries, how much stronger are you together? You're cutting yourself short by not sharing this knowledge, by not being open. Somebody might have a solution that's good for the bank account that you never would have considered because you don't have their perspective. Yep. If you open yourself up to these people, they're going to share perspective and they're sharing potential energy, creative energy. We all are creative. We can all solve problems. Open yourself up to that, man. Totally. Great, great stuff. I love it. Um, this has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you uh, for for uh, reconnecting with me, getting me down here to Rhode Island. It was a pleasure to come down and visit you. Um, this is exactly what I want to do going forward into the futures: is 
less feeding of the funnel and going and more going back to the people I've already connected with to go deeper. And you've done that for us. Thank you so much. So appreciate your time. Oh man, I appreciate talk. you. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. So how can we connect if we, if we're feeling inspired, if we're in Rhode Island or maybe we're on the other side of the country, but we don't give enough, we want to come hang out with you. We want to come work for you. What's the best way to connect? Uh, take a look on Instagram, follow us. We're uh juiced on Newport. So how do you G- spell that? G I U S T O. N-E-W-P-O-R-T. So Justo Newport. Check out our website, justonewport.com. Um, not Giasto. Not Giasto. Okay. Not Gusto, Gusto, <laughs> Guisto. So yeah, it's Justo. And Justo means just right. I love it. Well, this interview has been just right. Thank you so much, Chef Kevin. Uh, I almost forgot to have you call somebody out. Oh, man. Uh, that would have been a, a terrible thing. Who do you respect and admire in the industry and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? You know, this person um, that came to mind, I, I actually don't know him personally, but when I knew I was going to be coming back home to Rhode Island, I've always had my eye on his restaurants. Right now, he has one in Providence called Oberlin, and I've always had respect for him for what he did and is, continues to do in, in Providence and in Rhode Island. Um, you know, he's doing something different. He's, you know, what he does with food and how he takes care of people and what he's not afraid to say publicly about his views on anything um is ben suckle so i think you should definitely reach out to him and um he's the owner and chef of of oberlin in providence rhode island ben it's a great great restaurant um and they do it right awesome ben look out i'm coming after you i'd love to get you on the show and i just again thank you so much chef kevin there is no questioning you are unstoppable thank you eric cheers we'll cut it there well done sir There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Kevin O'Donnell, for coming on the show. And I love reconnecting with past guests, going deeper, and getting new just little details about what's happened since the last time we spoke. And thank you for getting open. Thank you for getting personal chef O'Donnell. Uh, really great stuff. So if you guys enjoyed today's episode and you want more like it, then be sure to support this podcast by supporting our sponsors, using our affiliate links, sharing this podcast with everybody, you know, aspiring to be great in the industry, joining a restaurant unstoppable network where we have our live recordings and then lastly if you have not done it yet please subscribe to our youtube channel head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable uh we are collaborating with sav and sam.com a videographer and photographer a couple out of iowa which is why i'm in iowa right now as you're listening to this and we're doing our best to collect a whole layer of content on top of these interviews so if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, well, we're trying to find sponsors for that YouTube channel. And the more subscribers we have, the more we can get for that sponsorship. So help us out. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Plus, really, that content's great. And you're missing out if you have not already subscribed. Also, and I'm thinking out loud here, I'll admit, I, I really want to start a Restaurant Unstoppable series of podcasts. So I want to stay in my lane of sharing the stories behind these incredible restaurateurs. I, I like to say behind every great restaurant's a great person and restaurant unstoppable podcast is really about learning from these people, sharing their stories, sharing their knowledge and making an example of them. But I feel like it's time to branch out and to surround myself with experts, surround myself with people who are truly passionate about certain verticals within the restaurant industry and then give them their own podcast uh, in collaboration with restaurant unstoppable. So I have a question for you. 
if Restaurant Unstoppable were to start a second podcast, what would you want us to focus on? What would the focus of that podcast be? Email me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Let me know what your interests are, and hopefully I can find a, a host to collaborate with and deliver that content for you. So excited for the future here at Restaurant Unstoppable. If you're not growing, you're dying. At least I'm taking that very literally, and I hope you are too. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.